ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Professor Stefan Stremers. Professor Stremers is a global expert on marketing and innovation, bridging thought leadership and leading practice. He has worked at some of the world's leading business schools and research universities and is currently a professor at the Erasmus School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. The first Thursday of every month of our podcast, I interview an academic whose work has been published in the International Journal of Research and Marketing with the goal to connect marketing practitioners with the latest and greatest research-based thinking. This interview is going to be a bit different because we're not discussing the paper that you recently published, but rather our conversation is inspired by that paper. The paper focuses on how academics can generate great research ideas by applying the ideation practices that you've seen at some of the top companies around the world. As a researcher, marketing professor, and expert on innovation, you switch gears between academia and practice. For this conversation, I'd like to take that know-how and reimagine if instead of academics, you were giving advice to marketing practitioners and business entrepreneurs about what you've learned about making innovation work well. First, if you're able to share, can you give us a sampling of the kinds of companies you've worked with? Yeah, uh, I'll be happy to. I worked a lot with science-based companies uh, like uh, Merck, also more engineering type of companies, uh, AliAxis, uh, Michelin, uh, Nokia, SKF, as well as service companies like Balois Insurance, uh, KLM Air France. So I worked across the board, but but typically with an origin in uh, B2B uh, science and technology companies. Wonderful. It's an interesting sampling of organizations. When Approaching innovation, we have to start with ideation. In your paper, you carve ideation into several dimensions, source of innovation, scope of innovation, sharing, at which point you share the innovation, and selection, which is the speed and method used to decide how to move forward. Where should businesses be looking for the source of their innovation? In the paper, what we use as an inspiration source is design thinking, which has been around for a couple of decades now, which actually tells you to go and start your search for new ideas, what the customer needs are. In business, that can be real customers, if we go the end customer needs uh, or what the in-between channels need. Now, of course, we know that we use uh, multiple ideation uh, methods beyond design thinking, especially if you work with technology and science companies that often also new technology and science breakthroughs are great origins uh, of, of, of new ideas. But it can also, for instance, be new business models. Is there maybe a different business model that I could take into my own industry and make a business model innovation? It can also be societal trends. I think about personalization as a big societal trend that we have seen throughout. That can also be a source of, uh, of great new ideas for companies. It can be partnering opportunities so that new partners arise. Maybe there are startups in your area that you want to work in that, have, that are bringing great technology uh, to market or have a unique idea on, on how to work in future market space that you maybe want to help on the bandwagon uh, and join them in their approach. Typically, we had say take the customer as central and as the origin point, but there, there are several other origin points that you can take. Let's just take customer experience for the basis of this conversation. Have you seen any practice or process that you felt really provided a great way to access and leverage 
any system or process that people have put in place to do that. Yeah, that falls a bit. And that's the other paper I'm writing. It's a bit uh, the customer insights seeking process uh, for firms and what now is labeled often in practice as the voice of customer. Like how do you get the voice of customer insight and ideation or insight and innovation approach, which is then, of course, interesting because is it always the voice of the customer? To what extent does the customer actually express what they need or to what extent is that maybe more observational uh, and non-intrusive in kind? For instance, what is often now seen, which is also, again, a bit design thinking, spirit that I would say is a bit more the empathizing like how do you empathize with a certain uh, customer demographic or a customer audience and through which techniques are you doing that I worked with a company where actually they lived on a farm for um, a full week and they actually helped the farmer with his daily routines uh, this was for a water management company and then because they were actually living on that farm and they observed that this farmer had to get out of bed let's say six o'clock in the morning and the first thing he did in the morning was actually examine all the water troughs uh, around for its cattle to actually see whether there was still enough water there and then he also did a simple health check on the water whether the water was pure enough and was good for his, his cattle to to drink from and of course you wonder like if you're a water management company <laughs> that gives you the idea could we actually get this tractor right that the guy needs to take every single morning for an hour an hour and a half around this land can we take that out and can we just have the water quality and the water quantity remotely monitored huh? which they did and then and that's a typical example of let's say how you could empathize with the customer not necessarily interviewing uh, the customer but more observing them or living with them which is a bit also in design thinking uh, the life uh, one day in the life of a customer uh, can you can you visually can you really re relive that? And so that's another way. So companies gauge this customer voice, I would say, in multiple ways, sometimes even without giving the customer a voice, but just looking at them and looking at how they behave. Well, right. And in some ways, that squares very nicely with Steve Jobs' famous quote that says it's really hard to design products by focus groups. A lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And so that's really about creating room in the conversation for inspired ideas. And that's the agility also that I see that it's very essential companies. How do you deal with uh, customer input? To what extent are you focusing on customer needs uh, and then keep an open mind? Or to what extent are you focusing on your solution space and actually seeing which customer group or demographic or need could fit that? The customer is notoriously myopic and will not tell you the needs of tomorrow. They will actually tell you what they needed yesterday. And if I would have asked the customer what they wanted, they would have set a faster horse. That's something I think is an interesting balancing act that many companies today struggle with. If there's been a recent science breakthrough like today with artificial intelligence. It doesn't come from the customer side, right? It comes from sideways, from a technology shock. Mm -hmm. uh, so you may want to keep it all open and you may want to wonder at which phase does it really make sense to go in which level of detail to ask the customer, right? Right. If we think about the scope for ideation, what kinds of limits if any, do you think should be brought into the ideation conversation and why? How wide open should it be? That's a good question. What people have shown in ideation literature is that the best way to proceed is to have a couple of domains to have ideation in, so not just to have one, because the presence of multiple, like two or three ideation domains, also allow people to change mindset in a way and actually jump across these things so it doesn't get fixated too much. Mm. But it has also been shown to give people inspiration in several domains, let's say, is a good thing. And it's better than just doing a very open-minded ideation um, because it's a bit of a blank page type of thing. Like if I ask you to write an article and I don't give you any other briefing, you're sitting there in front and probably you're a good writer. So that's for you, it comes natural. But many people would sit there with a blank page and would not know what to write. Right. Like 
typical writers struggle with is the blank page. Mm. Now, I give you already some inspiration, several domains, it just kicks in, like, like it kicks off your brain processes uh, to actually ideate. Uh, and, and the agility to have over multiple domains also keeps it very agile and allows your mind also to drift. Um, right. And there is some literature on that. There's some, there's some debate also, like uh, the systemic inventive thinking, I think, of my dear friends, say, like Jacob Goldenberg has pioneered, which really advocates to do more in-the-box, inside-the-box ideation and not outside-the-box ideation. So that would be probably more focused on limiting the search space and limiting it to a precise challenge. And mm-hmm. there's other that says, like, you need to give people a challenge that is more spread over domains to keep his agility going. At least the literature seems to agree on one thing is to just give an open playing field and not to do any demarcation of the playing field is probably not a very good idea. In the paper, you you mention dark horsing in the context of research design, which I think can be interestingly applied to scope. Can you can you explain for listeners who may not understand what that is, what the idea is and why it might be useful? Yeah, this is something that popped up in in my consulting practice. So actually, there's, as far as I know, no real theory behind it. It's not really a scholarly thing. It's kind of interesting because it comes from the horse races. Uh, it says that the white horse is is what everybody thinks that will be the winning horse, and that probably has something like if if you if you put three bucks on the horse as an input, and it wins, you maybe get three and a half back. So it's kind of a, almost like a certain win, or it's a very easy horse to pick. And then there is the dark horse that actually nobody things will win and that is like one to a hundred uh, for a bet if you would win and that actually sometimes wins so it's a bit an unexpected uh, race winner uh, what it does as a metaphor uh, inside the process is that what you see that when people ideate they mostly initially first come up with uh, I would say quite incremental ideas ideas that people think like okay yeah sounds logical sounds feasible sounds like something we may want to do but they're kind of safe uh, relatively safe ideas huh? and, mm-hmm. and and what we typically do in ideation exercises we let we let the process exhaust itself a bit that people kind of come up with these white horse ideas we don't give them the this the, the, the symbolic metaphor yet huh? we just say go in ideation but we typically see is that they come up with these rather safe ideas huh? and once that process exhausts itself and people feel a bit exhausted and say, okay, I now have a reasonable number of ideas. We also know from the ideas literature is the more ideas, the better ideas. So there's a clear link between a higher volume of ideas also means a higher quality of ideas Hmm. uh, by default. So you want that, uh, you want to reinvigorate uh, that ideation spin. And the way to reinvigorate is to give people the metaphor. These are all relatively safe ideas, but where are the crazy ideas? And we all know actually enough examples of crazy ideas that people initially said like, that's a crazy idea. You can never do that, including, by the way, the electric vehicle uh, based right. on its current Tesla Pioneer was supposedly a crazy idea according to the automotive industry, uh, but in the end worked. So we harvest these. And, and what that does is to give people a metaphor, like say, give us now the crazy ideas, give us the dark horses, give us the things that probably you won't win and stand a very small chance of succeeding, but are kind of maybe, maybe they could succeed, right? And that gives people, let's say, the psychological license to start to suggest ideas that are really off in a way and, and that otherwise people may not raise because they may be ridiculed for raising an idea like that. So, and so it gives people permission to start to do some crazier ideation. And of course, there's a lot of waste in that as well. But there are ultimately there could be some very strong uh, ideas inside that you would have not thought about initially, but that you only thought about because you were prompted to come up with very crazy ideas. 
Right. So the idea that you create the psychological safety, the organizational political safety to to really have some out there thoughts. And even if those particular thoughts are really out there, they may, first of all, they may be great, but they also maybe could be added or in, integrated into some of these incremental safer ideas to make a better idea. Why is asking the question, how might we useful when prioritizing the ideas that have been generated, what does it force people to do? Yeah, in, in design thinking, how might we have a very strong logic as well? It's a very open question. So it doesn't, there's no prior on a certain method of solving something. So the how question is completely open. The might is also a tense in English that allows a lot of elaboration. How might we? It doesn't say how should we, how can we? It's, it's how might. So it's, it's pretty open minded also again. It also inspires creativity. It's a typical question to say it's a can do mindset that you're, you're establishing. And the we is then brought in to bring more. Or a team in because if I ask you how might you it feels very personal and very much almost like an attack mm. if I need to say how might I it's really like okay I need to do it all myself so so we as a safer form exactly again so it allows this what, what, I, what my feeling is once you've done let's say uh, some customer empathizing then to transition to and how might we uh, like how might we solve the farmer's problem that he doesn't need to go around his farm in the morning every single day for one hour and a half mm. it's a very open way of addressing a problem space in a way it's a very safe way because i can create within the might and then the might can be anything right because right. it's just a might right and 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 the we is like okay we whoever we is <laughs> could do something like that so it keeps it quite open and, and so it is a very I, I think in creativity of suggesting uh, more ideas it's just a very open uh, way of yeah of suggesting uh, to open up that space i guess Right. One of the tools that you developed and, and mentioned in the paper was an idea napkin. What is an idea napkin and, and what is the benefit to to framing it that way? Yeah, I actually had to talk about that just one or two hours ago, uh, what, what the benefit of those things is. The idea napkin is as a title, so it has a name for an idea or a slogan-esque type of short sentence. So that, that, that labels the idea. It also has an idea owner. If it's a collective process, you actually have a set of names that are associated with the people that have raised or talked about that idea. And it typically also has a kind of need and solution, and it kind of stops there. So it has what's the customer? need that you may be addressing and what's the solution to that customer need and then it asks something like a visual input which can be a diagram it can be a cartoon-esque type of thing just to get people a bit like and sometimes we actually bring cartoon designers to workshops that actually draw these cartoons for the people in the workshop because that makes the idea come a little bit to life you could say that's almost like the first beta version of the product that ever existed it's like the first drawing of a prototype what it does is it if you if you bring it down right and you also call it a napkin is it really lowers the entry hurdle if you think about stage gate processes for instance and people need to submit an idea in a first phase you can ask a lot of things from people but the more you ask the fewer ideas you'll get submitted right mm. so the only thing that you need to do is you need to get enough information to actually be able to log an idea 
but you need to have uh, as little as possible to actually get that idea in the funnel in one way or the other, because then you can start to process it. Whatever is not submitted in a funnel cannot be processed, right? Uh, and that's what makes it makes it nice. Also, the fact that you have an equal approach for all the ideas, so that, that, that all the ideas in the funnel, let's say if you have a collective process and you go into a workshop with 20 or 30 people to stimulate ideas, and maybe you get out of the workshop with 50 to 100 of these napkins, you actually have all of them at the same level of sophistication. Mm. Even the idea, let's say, would have already, because that's what you also have, of course, if you do ideation, you always have reinventing the wheel from projects that are already undergoing. So you need to put these uh, projects that are already further elaborated, you need to put them back in time, and you need to put them back at the elementary level, because these 50 to 100 ideas need to be scrutinized towards maybe 10 ideas that you will maybe make a value proposition of out of something. No? Right. Uh, and the fact that we create this equal space uh, for all the ideas to be evaluated in an equal way is also very valuable because it should not be the form that the idea is presented in that actually wins one idea over the other. It should actually be the content of the idea and the quality of the idea. And therefore, you need to always bring them in a stage gating at the same level of development. I love that. And you mentioned that in the paper, not only from the idea napkin point, but almost like the decks people put together, that it shouldn't be because you've got a deck wizard putting together your idea that you win just because it's flash and bang, as opposed to the the idea. I love the equal level setting. So what really shows is the idea itself. I, I had been thinking, oh, the shortness, it feels a lot like an elevator pitch, you know, when you've got a short period of time. But in some ways, the elevator pitch is, is the exact opposite because it's when you've refined it all the way down to this very, you know, You've, you've nailed it. You've got all the details, but you're just nailing it to this very small. It's almost like they're opposite ends of the of the spectrum. Now, your paper also advocates for earlier sharing of ideas. And it's risky in an academic setting because there's a risk of idea stealing. And in a corporate setting, there's sometimes political downside to sharing an idea too early. What level of sharing are you advocating here if you're talking in a business sense, you know, setting aside academics? When, when should people in a business start sharing their ideas. Yeah, I think actually, to to be honest, uh, I think very early. And so, and that's also what companies are doing. I'm not sure if companies are still in the spirit or people within companies to hide their idea because it may be stolen by somebody else in the company. It's also not very well tolerated anymore. And so, because now companies have a lot of knowledge management systems where these ideas are actually uh, archived, actually from the very, very first part. Also, people find it very valuable for sharing because they can get feedback. So, this when we organize workshops with companies, what we often do, even if there are teams split up across domains, let's say, we have them visit each other's teams and actually go to, let's say, idea napkin walls to actually give feedback on each other's thing because also the feedback on one idea of one person is the is the input of, let's say, um, a piece of chemistry in the other idea. So by giving feedback on an idea, you also get richer in the generation on your own ideas because you have learned something from the feedback giving process, uh, whatever that may be, and how ill-codified uh, that is. So I feel that that company is actually doing the sharing much much more and more. What okay. they sometimes struggle with, I really talked to two companies actually today, is about the setting of templates. And that's more interesting in a way that many companies still don't constrain the templates yet enough or did not engineer their templates, not enough yet, by which you have this thing that cases are shared, but they don't, they're not on the same level playing field, let's say that's a bit awkward. And that, of course, also limits sharing. So I think today there is 
there's already a lot of sharing, I think, but what is happening more and more is companies saying we need to somehow standardize a little bit the templates in each of the phases that we are sharing ideas with, that, that there, is, there is more like one common language. And especially because companies are consolidating, they're going through M&As, and mm. all of these processes need to consolidate a bit. And that's where there is a little bit of effort, and that's also where the level, the thing is a bit like you have this uh, sharing of ideas in different templates, but where do you put which information constraint on an idea? What component needs to be an idea in which phase eh? because it's very easy to kill ideas if you put more information in them it's very easy to also kill the spirit so the right. more detail that you ask you sometimes kill the energy but you sometimes also kill the ideas that actually a lot of things are unanswered a lot of things that you don't know right so so how do you keep the ideas despite them having blanks and templates right because not because you don't know certain things that you should kill the idea entirely the skill to kill learning when to let an idea go, not to grip onto it too tight. Can you talk a little bit about that here? Yeah, you, uh, that you need to be able to kill an idea fast. It's not going to make it because that frees up resource to put on the other idea. And of course, what's happening a bit is like, how do you get an idea at a level that you know enough to either go forward with it or to kill it? Mm. Many ideas, they remain at a level of like, yeah, we don't know, you know, we don't know, we didn't have a clear prioritization. And that's a bit what the Lean Startup Movement uh, has brought as an insight to many companies, which they're now implementing, is if an idea, let's say, it's clear what the idea is. Can we then make clear for ourselves as a company what exactly is underlying the idea that is a fact, right? So what are, let's say, what are market assumptions that are facts? Like, for instance, there are X number of businesses in industry Y. That's a fact, right? Mm-hmm. What are assumptions? And of these assumptions, which are the ones that are really key for us to check? Uh, and how much does that cost? And, and which for which are for us not so key to check? And how much do they cost? And can we then, let's say, do a prioritization on assumptions? based on the cost for checking the assumption as well as the extent to which the assumption is blocking if it appears not to be true to go forward with innovation. By that, you're listing for yourself step by step what are the key things to check and when do we not go forward with the idea and Mm -hmm. to actually get the right information to actually be able to make the decision. And so going with the right information, that decision is really key. And then to say, look, once we have the right information and we have enough to kill, we then need to also kill it. Right. right. Despite right. people are still dragging dragging on. And that's the, the, the skill to kill. Now, this is much easier in theory than in practice, of course. Yeah, right. You get vested in, in interest. You've spent a lot of yeah. you know, yeah. you've spent a lot of time that you've invested in it. Toward the end of the paper. You talk about how generative AI could be used for research ideation. How and where should people be bringing AI into their innovation brainstorms? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a bit like with Gen AI, and it's a bit all over the uh, all over the area. I think is that every day when you open the newspaper, there may be a new application area that helps us up. And so it's it's enormous because actually innovation is ranked as one of the top functions within or top competencies within an organization that could be let's say supported or replaced by AI. So it's one of the most impacted fields within a company. Think about, for instance, the sourcing of ideas like we just have have talked about. Huh? Like if you think about trends analysis. Like like today, actually, there are there's Gen AI applications of trends analysis that actually predict also which trends are going to come up when. And it's like what you usually did from the Gartner reporting. Let's say you wait for the next Gartner report and you knew which trend was going to be big. Now that's going to be AI driven. It's going to be autonomously updated and it's going to be even be even personalized 
uh, to the firm that you're actually uh, working for. So there's a lot in the in the trends uh, sensing and the need sensing about what's happening on social media and all the processing that we today already do. Uh, but that's only going to increase to really identify what are the needs that customers have. I have another project going that we just are starting. As, that's about feature optimization and some work. And like I can actually let Gen AI tell me which features are best to optimize on a car. I can actually let AI try to kind of guess what would be the improvement in my market penetration if I would optimize that feature. Uh, so, so these are kind of the applications you see coming. And then the question, of course, is how accurate they are and can we demonstrate their accuracy. But for instance, in that kind of sense, there is already some early proof uh, that these synthetic market research tools, which means that actually doing market research through LLMs rather than through primary data gathering, that actually work reasonably well. Wow. There is oh, wow. work in the, yeah, which could put the entire market research business out of business. Uh, I'm curious of your opinion as an, as an expert. Do you think there's a risk of dulling human expertise it, that we lean on this? And obviously, Gen AI can do a lot of innovation. Do you think it can invent innovation versus invention? There's a lot of things involving there. With a large language model, you can have more ideas than a human can have, of course, because it's much faster. But what they also find is that the quality of the idea in terms of the market potential, as judged by experts, is higher with the Gen AI, with the Gen AI ideation than wow. with the human ideation, but it's less novel. So the right, so less PA less and, novel, right? Of yeah, course. but, but the question: what you what, what do businesses want? Do they want to optimize novelty, or do they want to optimize business potential? And so probably business potential. And so there is a lot of work in this in, in this ideation coming. Actually, the platform Mural, which is like this collaborative online platform where you can put these sticky notes, they had an ideation approach where they say put an idea on an, on one of these post-it notes, and then you could just ask Mural according to an LLM to just generate ten more of those. 10 more ideas that would be similar kind of ideas, but still different, right? And, and it would do that. And actually, you could then also even have it cluster ideas. So there's also work in, can you, if I give you 50 ideas, can you cluster them in meaningful ways? So the ideation space is actually quite impacted now today with large language models, but we know this already from the artificial intelligence side, from chemistry and medicine, where they also already the last couple of years, they've worked on platforms to basically artificially do molecular design, do what they call in, in silico testing, like to see if two molecules would interact with each other or if an enzyme would react to something, just basically in silico. And you have heard about the protein folding experiment, I think, with Gen AI, with, with artificial intelligence. So already artificial intelligence was in other sciences, but now it comes actually to, let's say, ideation in, the, in terms of word fabrication. And that's definitely going to end up happening as well. It's coming into scenario planning for companies, which again goes into how would we need to behave in the future in certain domains, and it starts to mix these two things together. So it's gonna be it's gonna be extremely impactful. Well, and last question, and I you sort of hinted a little bit at it in terms of less novelty versus more novelty. If you are in a company and you are thinking about innovation, do consumers prefer less novelty or do they re how do they react to innovations? But this is one of the things that I always say in my class for the consumer, no innovation is perfect. It's like, if you look at when a consumer frames a new experience as an innovation, it's often to talk about problems. They're like, oh, it doesn't fit their behavior, they need to change themselves, they don't understand it, it's too complex. And that's actually what goes back to Everett Rogers' five, five determinants of innovation speed, which is usefulness, complexity, compatibility, trial, and observability. 
So you see, typically when you have an innovation that comes to market and it's really coded by the consumer or the customer as, wow, that's really innovative, it's not always a positive thing. So ah. the customer actually doesn't want to change their behavior. And many innovations ask you to change your behavior. So I'm always saying the best innovation is no innovation at all, that the customer can just adopt without adapting any of his behaviors. Oh, interesting. Um, that's a great, that is so good. I love that. And I think that's a great thing for for people to think about. And we have raced through all our time. Thank you so much for sharing this. I clearly have lots of other questions and we have other topics we could talk about because innovation and inventions, it's such a great topic. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Notton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.